There's a, a phrase that's been around for many years. It says, garbage in, garbage out. <clears throat> and it aptly and succinctly reminds us that when we expose ourselves to, to negative, destructive ideas, destructive information, destructive experiences and influences, etc., that we're going to begin to produce attitudes and words and actions that have the kind of bad qualities that we've been taking in. So what we put in is generally what comes out of us. Garbage in, garbage out. The good thing is the opposite is just as true. Good stuff in, good stuff out. The impact of our, our, on our lives of whatever we are focusing on or immersing ourselves in cannot be overstated. It's so important as to what we put in front of us each and every day. We are exposed to so many things without, without even trying. We see billboards and you're watching television and all of a sudden an, an ad comes on TV that you'd just rather not see. And, and without going out of our way, we're exposed to so much bad that when we have a choice, we need to choose to put good things in front of our face and in front of us so that we can take in the good things. But the good thing is, another good thing is, that the Bible is real clear about this because long before this, this whole psychological thing about garbage in, garbage out came around, the Word of God had spelled out this reality in a lot of different places. And I want to look at a couple places this morning. Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, with all your mind. Romans 1.28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And then chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And then chapter 12 and verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then the final verse we want to read is Philippians 4 and 8. Finally, brothers, whatsoever, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So the Bible is very clear that we need to control our mind and put things in front of us because the good things in our mind ultimately control our actions. The passage of Scripture that we're going to read next takes place following right after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So we see that Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, goes into the desert or the wilderness, depending what version you're reading, for a time of testing of his will. And I believe the purpose of this trial was to, to demonstrate his sinless nature and character and consequently also prove his supreme qualification to be the Savior for all mankind. Remember, he had to relate to mankind. We had to be able to look at him and say that he did suffer as we suffer. If not, then it would be easy for people to say, but, but you don't understand how I feel. And so we see Jesus goes into the, the desert or the wilderness for 40 days of fasting. And although he had a good purpose, the devil's purpose was just the opposite. He knew that if he could entice Christ to sin in any respect, didn't matter what he could get him to do, if he could just get him to sin, that God's plan of salvation would fail. You say, well, Jesus didn't have a choice. Yeah, he did. If he didn't have a choice, then, then what's the purpose of this story? It would serve no purpose. It would show that there was no will, that he was just a, a robot that had to do whatever he was programmed to do. But he did have a choice, and that's why Satan tempted him. We also have to realize that there was no other alternative for redemption. If the devil could tempt Satan, if the devil could tempt Jesus to sin, then there was no backup plan. And so it was very important for him to, to go after Jesus with everything he had. But Jesus, in obedience to his Father's will, begins this 40-day fast in this barren wasteland. And verse 2 tells us very plainly, he was hungry. And I think it's important for us to, to realize that part of the Scripture that he was hungry because, again, it tells of the humanity of Jesus. It tells that he really does suffer, did suffer, as we do. It would do no good for him to be a completely spiritual being and go out and fast for 40 days because a spiritual being requires no food. But it says specifically he was hungry. When he fasted, he got hungry. When he walked too far, he got tired. Amen. And it's important. We, we sometimes skip over little parts of Scripture that, that have so much meaning. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And it was under these conditions, when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry, that the Bible says the tempter came to him. He waited till he was at the, the very end of this fast. And the devil confronts Jesus with three very carefully crafted temptations. The first one is pretty blatant. He, he just comes out and says, If you are who you say you are, 
Then turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. So if you are who you say you are, then turn these stones to bread. He, all, he knew that Jesus possessed the power to do that. I don't think he would have tempted him to do it if he didn't think he could. What, what good would it do to tempt somebody to do something that they're not capable of doing? Anybody can overcome that temptation just say, I can't. So Satan knew who Jesus was. But he wanted him to give in to his human desire for food. And we know that Jesus was hungry. But he refused to act con contrary to the will of his Father. He said no. In fact, he went even further. He responded to the devil by quoting Scripture. He quoted Deuteronomy 8 and 3, and he said, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And you say, well, okay, so he won that one. But see, this goes back to the most important thing and what we started off talking about is that it's important what we put into our mind because that's what's going to come out. If we don't know the Scripture, it would be impossible to quote the Scripture when we're tempted. The point that Jesus made here was that obedience to God's Word is more important than satisfying one's physical needs and desires. In other words, he was saying, you know what, Satan, you're right, I am hungry. And I could turn those stones to bread. And in fact, the humanist part of me would like to do that because then I wouldn't be hungry anymore. But I'm not going to. Because man doesn't just live by bread alone. There's something way more important. Then we come to the second temptation, and, and it says that Satan took Jesus... To, the, to Jerusalem and took him to the, the highest point of the temple. And this was probably the southwest or the southeast corner of the temple. And this portion of the temple rose some 600 feet above the Kidron Valley. So here they are at this, this top of the temple, this, this precipice of the temple, this pinnacle. And again, Jesus uses this, or, or Satan uses the same start off to, with this temptation. If you are the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, then you should be able to leap off of this pinnacle and remain unharmed. But this time, this is this is important also. This time, Satan does something different. He quotes Scripture to Jesus. He, he quotes the scripture that says that the Father would command his angels to keep Jesus from striking his foot against a stone. However, if you put that passage, the quote from Satan, and the actual passage of scripture from Psalm, Psalm 91, 11, and 12 that Satan quoted, you will see that he left out an important phrase. And that was that little phrase in between, for he will command his angels concerning you, and this is what Satan left out, to guard you in all your ways. He didn't quote that part. And I think we can learn a couple things here. 
It's important for us to know the Word of God so that we're not led astray when someone would take bits and pieces and try to make it into something it's not. If the devil would come at Jesus himself and try to misquote Scripture in order to tempt him, do you think he'll try anything less for us? That's another reason why it is so important for us to know what the Word of God says. The other is that this passage in Psalm 91 teaches us that God will provide His angels to watch over us, to watch over His people when they live in accordance with His will. Satan proclaimed that, that God would protect Jesus as He plummeted to the ground. The problem was, that wasn't within the will of God. So if it wasn't in the will of God, the promise of divine protection wouldn't apply. Had Jesus jumped, let's just say what if, had Jesus jumped from the, the pinnacle of the temple and landed in the courtyard around all of those people that were in the temple that day, he would have immediately been accepted as the Messiah because they would have known that, that he was some super being. They were looking for a Superman-type Messiah. And if he had jumped 600 feet from the top of the temple and landed without being hurt, they would say, surely this is the Messiah. But that wasn't the type of Messiah that was to come. So it wasn't in God's will for him to do something like that. So Jesus did the same thing he did the first time. He quoted Scripture from Deuteronomy. He said, It is written, Do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Satan, don't tempt me. I'm not going to do that. Then Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. The third and final temptation with which Satan confronted Jesus per, perhaps posed the greatest challenge. It could be viewed as an appeal to, to power, to pride, and even self-preservation. You see that Satan takes Jesus to this very high mountain, and the devil displays the magnificence of all the kingdoms of the world. Isn't it interesting to to see that when the devil sets out to tempt us, he always tries to show us the spectacular part of the temptation. He's never tempted someone to become an alcoholic or a drug addict by showing them a picture of someone laying in a gutter, homeless, having lost everything because of the addiction. No, instead he shows them all the good part. He is the greatest advertiser that ever lived. just like billboards. He only wants us to see the upside of the, 
of what's going to happen if we do what He says. But Jesus knew better. He tried it with Jesus, and for us to think that He won't try, us, try it with us today is just not being wise. And there's a question that comes to, to mind when we read that Satan takes Jesus to this place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give you all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me. And this is a question a lot of people ask. Did Satan have the authority to make that offer? According to the Scripture, he did. Jesus himself, in John 12 and 31, referred to Satan as the prince of the world. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Obviously, he's in control of the, the world. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. Paul called him the God of this age. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The evil world system that opposes God's redemptive plan for humanity is under Satan's control. The things of this world are under his control. God's plan has always been that Jesus the Messiah would eventually rule over all the earth. And in this temptation, we see that what Satan was offering Jesus was to rule over the earth without having to wait. And also without having to go through the pain and suffering of going to the cross. So Satan's saying, look, if you'll just bow down and worship me, you can have all this. And you don't have to go through what your ultimate sacrifice is going to be. You say, well, he wasn't tempted with that. The humanity part of Jesus, I think, at some point would look at that and say, hmm, that's, that's not a bad deal. I can have all of this and I don't have to suffer. But again, it goes back to what, what Satan does is he only shows us the good part. Because had Jesus chosen to do that, there would be no hope for salvation for you and me today. If Jesus had given into temptation, it would have shown that he would have shown himself to be subordinate to a fallen being. Because now he's saying, I will bow down to Satan, who had been cast from heaven. And at the same time, he would have completely subverted God's plan of salvation for the human race. So Jesus answers again, and his answer is very clear, very forceful. First thing he says, he commands Satan, away from me, Satan. Just get away from me. This is the third time you've come at me. Get away from me. Sometimes I think that's just what we need to do. The first thing we need to do is just go right to, in Jesus' name, get away from me. Amen. And then as he had done before, he triumphs over temptation by using the Word of God. Jesus declared in verse 10, For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. 
I'm not going to bow down to you, Satan. Here's what's written in the Word. Go away. Leave me alone. And so we see that Jesus, although He is tempted, He doesn't give in to the temptation. We saw last week as we studied with Jesus being baptized that in order to be identified with sinners, although He was sinless, Jesus had submitted to baptism by John the Baptist. In doing so, He fulfilled the righteous requirements expected of the Messiah. And now, He has come, come through this 40-day fast. He's hungry. Satan comes with Him with everything He's got, offering, literally offering Him the world. And He resists temptation. And by resisting temptation, Jesus demonstrated the reality of His own righteousness and the power of God to resist the devil's attacks. It gives us hope because we know that because he was human and there was that human side of him because we know he was hungry and he was tired. And even through all of that and being offered the entire world, he resisted temptation. And I believe that gives us hope today. That when the devil comes against us and he tries to, to, to tempt us into, maybe not into just sin or anything like that, but to just not go the way that, that God wants us to go, that we just don't give in. And so we could look at that and say, well, that's great. Jesus defeated Satan and it was all over. That wasn't the case. Although he had defeated Satan at this point, it was only for a time. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to explain, this is coming towards the time when Jesus was going to be crucified. From that time on, Jesus began to explain this to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. The pastor and writer Warren Wiersbe points out about this passage, and I'll quote him. He said, quote, through Peter, Satan again tempted Jesus to abandon the cross. End of quote. He used one of his closest disciples again to try to tempt him from going to the cross. Even though he had resisted temptation after 40 days of fasting, he came at him right towards the end one more time. And there's another place in John 6. Verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This took place, this passage of Scripture here, took place right after Jesus had fed the, the thousands of people with just the lunch of, of a little boy. And the people saw this and they said, wow, he really is somebody. 
And Jesus was afraid that they would come and try to force him to be king. And again, I'll quote Warren Wiersbe on this scripture. He said, quote, Though the crowd had been fed, Satan tempted Jesus to an easy kingdom. One victory never guarantees freedom from further temptation. Jesus could have said, well, they're willing to make me king. I'll just, I'll just be king. And I'll have my earthly kingdom here and we'll be all done. Again, here was that same temptation. The exact same temptation that Satan had come to him in, in the wilderness saying, all of this will be yours. The kingdoms of the world. But he came at him through somebody else. Just because you, you resist temptation, don't think that the devil's going to give up on you. He'll just figure another way to come at you. Again, I'll go back and I'll say this again, and, and I really want this to sink in. If he would do it to Jesus Christ himself, he will do it to you. If he thought that he could use those tactics to defeat Jesus Christ, trust me that he will come at you in the same way. During the Revolutionary War, when the troops from the colonies were were facing massive casualties and it was cold and foggy, and often at these times their, their hearts began to faint. Remember that, that these soldiers from the colonies were not professional soldiers. They were farmers. And they were standing up against an army, a British army that was trained soldiers. And so here were these farm boys who were barely able to make a formation, much less march like an army, who didn't have the weapons for fighting a war, they had the weapons for hunting. And they're fighting this trained professional army. And during these difficult times, history tells us that often it was the rereading of George Washington's orders and admonitions that gave them the authority and the will to fight beyond their capabilities. They would take out those orders from General Washington and read them again as to what this is all about. Why are we fighting this war? And it would give them the strength to, to go out and fight beyond their, their capabilities. The words that they heard were the power and vision and authority of a soldier greater than themselves. They were listening to this great general, George Washington. And it inspired them to go out and fight for this cause. It was also an authority that their enemy knew very well, too. And it was an authority, George Washington, that ultimately defeated that enemy. And when we think of the power of the words of a human being and how much power there is in those words, I will tell you that there's something far more powerful, and that's the Word of God. In the 2nd century A.D., Troops from the Roman Empire used a, a small sword. It was somewhere between a large knife and a small sword. It was called of, and I'll, I wrote this all down, a machia. And they used these swords in battle. And they would take this and they would put it in their, their belt. And when they got to close hand-to-hand -hand combat, the people they were fighting 
were scared to death because these guys were just brutal with these little short swords. This was the weapon that Paul had in mind when he told the people at the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 6 and 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. To take this, take this Word of God, put it here close by, and when you come to that personal one-on-one hand-to-hand combat, that's what you use to defeat your enemy. He told the, the people at Ephesus to be skilled in using that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus was tested by the devil in the wilderness, a literal wilderness. Our wilderness may not be out in the desert. Our wilderness might be just the tough places of our life. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, James said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. James was saying that when you're tempted, count it joy. That's tough. When you face trials, count it as joy. But he goes on to explain, because those trials build character. They develop perseverance. There's a purpose for the trials that come into our lives. Like that Roman sword, the Word of God is our weapon against temptation. Disciplined study of of God's Word before temptation comes is like putting money in the bank for an emergency. Too many times we we neglect the Word of God and then we get in trouble and we go looking. Let me find a scripture for this. No. It's too late to go get your sword when the enemy's already attacked you. Hang on, I'll be right back. I've got to go home and get my Bible. This is our sword. We might not be able to carry it around in our belt all the time, but we can have it here all the time. That's why it's important that we read this. We we put it in our heart. We study it. We memorize it. When we meet temptation, if we know the Scripture, we can respond with what God says as opposed to what the world says. The other thing to remember is that Satan actually quoted or misquoted Scripture to Jesus. How can we expect to stand against Him when He knows more about it than we do? If He can quote the Scripture to us and we can't quote it back or know if He's right or wrong or said it right, then how can we expect to resist temptation? Around the first part of every year, and I'm sure this year is no different than any other year, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. One of the biggest ones is to exercise our bodies. I know nobody here did that because you exercise all the time. With that in mind, let me ask you this. 
Have we made a, a, a New Year's resolution to exercise our mind? Would a stronger mindset, a mindset that is fixed on the ways of God, go much further for us in resist, resisting all kinds of temptation? Of course it would. Would you consider that as this new year begins, investing time and, and effort and energy into reading and meditating on the Word of God, maybe even memorizing the Word of God in this coming year? Psalm 119 and 11, David said this, he said, I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. David saw the importance of, of knowing what was right and what was wrong and the ways of God and to put it in his heart. And I believe it's no less important for us today to know what the Word of God says and to hide it in our heart. We read all of these scriptures at the very beginning about how what is in our mind will direct what comes out of us. If the Word of God is in our mind, it only stands to reason that we would live more like Christ. Well, how do I do that? There are Bibles that now have daily sections laid out for the reader to read the Bible in a year. You can literally just read what somebody tells you to read just that day, and within a year you can read the entire Bible. There are all types of devotional materials out there. We have Christian radio. We have sermons online. I know here at High Point Church, we, we put every lesson, every sermon online, and we have people from all over the world that download these on their iPods and listen to them back. And there's a lot of good resources out there that we can use to strengthen our minds with the Word of God. When Jesus said in Matthew 4 and 4 that, that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, it was a reminder and a call to us to feed our spirit with the food we so desperately need to resist the temptations that Satan will bring against us. If we want to thrive in our relationship with God, then we have to eat those things that are spiritual. And that's what we need to feed our mind with. Maybe you're busy, and, and we all are busy. And maybe you don't have time to just sit down and, and read for a couple hours out of your Bible. Maybe it's just a nibble here and there. Maybe it's a scripture in the morning before you get up and, and go about your day. And then when you get home at night before you go to bed, it's another passage of scripture that you read. That's, that's better than not looking at the Word of God at all. It's a great start. Whatever we can get, and wherever we can grab a bite of this Word of God to place in our heart, is a step in the right direction. The Word of God is powerful. And while there's an awful lot of truth in the statement of garbage in and garbage out, a statement that is just as true is good stuff in and good stuff out. 
And I will close with the words of an English pastor, Robert C. Chapman. He lived from 1803 and died in 1902. And here's what he said about the Word of God. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to sustain you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand object, our good is, is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is given you in life, will be opened in judgment, and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. That sums it up right there. That is how powerful the Word of God is. And again, I will ask you the same question that we started out with today. What's on your mind? God bless you.